Hi, this is Paul, and you're listening to ArcNext Sessions, episode 117. This week, Ken, Donna, and I take a look at some of the news and features that have been published across ArcNext in the last week or so. So you guys, um, it hasn't been the most newsworthy of times lately, but there's been a lot of a lot of news, and a lot of exciting new features that are part of uh, different series that have been up on ArcNect. I was thinking that we could start with a story that we just put up today about the French Laundry, one of the top restaurants in the world up in the Bay Area, just getting a new renovation by Snowheda. I don't know. Did you guys get a chance to read this? <laughs> I didn't. I'm sorry. Ken, did you? I haven't, but I've been looking at, you know, and I'm, because I, I do, I, I tend to do work in restaurants and I've been looking at, I've been spending a lot of time looking at just falling over the images from just the kitchen. $10 million. It's hard to believe that this space only costs $10 million. It's a really beautiful project. Yeah. It's amazing because that kitchen alone is, is ridiculously expensive. And I, you know, I tell my clients and I'm like, yeah, if you had this kind of money, <laughs> your kitchen could look like this. <laughs> so yeah, it's, this is a quite a beautiful project. It is. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. It also shows the diversity of Snowheada, uh, especially in, well, I mean, talking about Snowheada in the news, I mean, they've been in the news a lot lately. This is just, yeah. I mean, beyond, I know that uh, Donna, you have some, some opinions on Snowheda's proposed renovation of the uh, AT&T lobby in New York. I'm almost equating their decision to take part in renovating the AT&T lobby, Philip Johnson's, the original lobby, not the one that's been messed up already by uh, Mitchell Jurgle years ago, but the original lobby, which I went to shortly after it opened, and it was a gorgeous, beautiful, calming, soothing public space. Snowheda's going to turn it into one of our commenters on Arconnect called it a cut-rate urban target. <laughs> and I have to say, since reading that Snowheda's involved in this, I would rank them not as bad as Diller Scafidio Renfro knocking down the Folk Art Museum, but it's in the same park, I'd say. Yeah, because suddenly Snowheda seems to be everywhere. They're doing a lot of stuff. They're doing this. They're doing stuff in the Arctic Circle. I'm just kind of like, I'm okay, I don't need to pay attention to Snowheda anymore because they've done <laughs> one thing that bothered me. So I'm done. <laughs> so I'm, one thing one thing I wonder, Donna, do you hold this kind of grudge in, in all aspects of your life or only in architecture? Only in architecture amongst people I have not met. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, people that I meet personally, I have very, very wide circles of forgiveness for. So Snowheada just needs to meet you and sit down and have coffee or wine. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. No, but I... Call uh, me. No, no I, I, I respect that. I respect that because, I mean, it's it's another potential destruction of an iconic project um, similar Truly to Truly an important project. Yeah. 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 But something makes me feel like Snowheda has recently invested in a, a very active like PR firm or something because they they're the amount of press that they've been getting is has skyrocketed relative yeah. to what they've what they've received prior to like the AT&T project for example. Yeah. Absolutely. They're in the news all over the place. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, their work is is um it's provocative. I mean, to do the first underwater restaurant or, you know, the uh, underwater restaurant in Norway would be Europe's first. I mean, I love their work, but when I see some of this kind of stuff like, you know, this underwater restaurant, this, you know, this crystalline UFO, I mean, I kind of wonder, is there a point that architects or do we have to design everything? I mean, can't we just <laughs> say no once in a while? I mean, there's like three projects in here that I would just say, why do you need to add that? Because somebody wants to pay you a shit ton of money? Well, I mean, for God's sakes, just stop. Slow down. 
Slow your roll. I mean, I love the underwater restaurant just because it's just it's amazing to think that this underwater restaurant has already started getting built. But and it breaks ground, no less. But yeah, I mean, these recent projects that have been getting published from their office do feel a little bit like Facebook kind of clickbaity kind of stuff, you know, like those the kind of pieces those those little ads that you see at the bottom of news articles on like, you mm-hmm. know, Washington <laughs> Post and stuff like where it's like it's kind of like uh, absurd in a way, but also extremely intriguing. And and that goes back to my comment about their work being, I guess, diverse isn't the right word, but maybe like eclectic or versatile. Uh, it, it seems like their their style is hard to nail down these days. I think that's very yeah. true. I do. I And maybe that's hardly maybe, maybe why I'm frustrated with the Philip Johnson renovation is that, you know, it seems very dull, frankly. It doesn't seem like it's something that's taking an icon and making something that's additionally iconic added to it. It's just very dull. Now, if I look at this, um, you know, they have been in the news for a lot of things in that a house to die in is under some kind of um, controversy over it being built in a woods. I can't remember. Do you guys remember this story that it's being built in a woods that was featured in a book, I think? The Norwegian project. Yeah, it's a uh, the Black crystalline UFO. Yes. And I'm looking for it on Arconnect right now. I can't seem to find it, but I know we've covered it. You know, to that one, that one to me, I'm like, hey, that seems like a pretty cool project. It's it's kind of crazy and it's very personal. And uh, speaking of Facebook, that project made the rounds on Facebook. And it was so interesting in that from my perspective, from my my Facebook friends, people either totally loved it or just thought it was the most it was the stupidest, like most ridiculous thing that they'd seen. There was no in between there. Is very polarizing project. Yeah, I think it's funny and cool and very, very personal. And uh, it, it, sorry, it reminds me of um, when the Obama portraits were revealed this week. One of the people I follow on Twitter, she's a local African American writer, said, "You know, this might be an opportunity for those of you who know about art to try to teach people about it rather than just to laugh at it or, or to make fun of people who don't get it." And I, I feel like that's in Facebook, that tends to be something that happens a lot is people put something up. And like you said, it's very clickbaity and people have this really strong reaction either against it or for it. But mostly it's just about making fun of or having fun with it. I mean, I do think Snowhead's work is great for the most part. I really like them. I'm just I'm very angry at them about the Philip Johnson building. Which is good. I mean, it's good to be strong in your <laughs> opinion on, on, a, on a matter that is pretty big architecturally. I love that, Ken, because we make these things very personal, you're looking at the French Laundry and saying, oh, that kitchen, it's to die for. Like, that's an amazing kitchen. <laughs> because yeah. you have a, an association with that. Yeah. You know, I mean, this one particular project, though, with this artist, for this artist, this Norwegian artist, it just, it's just, again, it's this, it's a monument to hubris. I mean, there's just, you have to, some people just don't need to get the stupid shit they want built, built. I mean, I remember <laughs> it was the biggest joke around that. I remember I was a kid, we would call up places and go, yeah, I want to get my house put on a turntable so I can have it follow the sun. I mean, I'm sure you could do that. And, I, and in fact, I know there's work that's been done that people have done stupid stuff like that. I mean, but the, you have to ask the question is like, is it really worth you know, that kind of exercise and just, you know, just because I want something, I get it. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is, this is a, this house is a, is a perfect example of, of that expression that because this guy has a lot of money, he's going to build something that he wants. And, you know, God, I mean, we have a president who does anything he wants because he wants it. 
And I just, that's when I kind of look at some of this work and I go, we have to start kind of where, where have we, haven't we crossed the line where we're constantly feeding people's wants instead of the needs of the world? And okay, it's so kind of indicative of that kind of stupidity. You've totally set up for a segue into the, the other, another piece we wanted to talk about today, which is this, this Heatherwick thing, the Heatherwick stare thing that's being, that's built in Manhattan right now. I hardly even know what to call it because I've been so frustrated and bored with it. I just have hardly been paying attention to it. But, I think um, stare thing is perfect. Stare thing. Stare the stare thing, stare thing that thing. Thomas Heatherwick built in, um, at Hudson Yards, right? And it is completely a vanity project by a wealthy developer. And I'm looking at the article right now. Ross, what, Stephen Ross, billionaire property developer, owner of the Miami Dolphins, basically looked at this space in the Hudson Yards and said, I want to put something cool there. And they built this dumb stair thing. And I, again, I like a lot of Heatherwork's work. And we've been having a really, I think, a good conversation about it on on Arconnect in the on the news article. But this thing just leaves me cold and seems ridiculous. It seems like a pointless, this billionaire said, I want something cool. Thomas Heatherwick, make me something cool. And that's all it is. There's no depth beyond that. I don't have, you know, I don't have a ton of strong opinions on this project, but I, but these are, these are the opinions that I have. I mean, I think that it's, <laughs> I mean, from, from the photos that I've seen, I think in the context of the city, it looks a little alien. Uh, like it's just, I don't know. I don't know how it fits. It looks a little clumsy from certain angles, but at the same time, I think from other angles, it's beautiful. And this seems to me like the kind of project that cannot truly be critiqued or you can't really form an opinion until you experience it, because it seems like a very experiential project, which I think in those terms is very appropriate for New York, because I, I always think of New York City as kind of like an urban playground where people really live and and spend their time in the city rather than, you know, inside uh, their houses or inside buildings. Um, it's really uh, it's it's kind of like an addition to to this urban playground, which seems like uh, it could be quite nice. Do you have any thoughts, though, on the whole notion of New York City becoming an urban playground? I mean, I'm certainly old enough and you're not much younger than I am to remember a time when New York was a place where people really did live and do business. And it wasn't this kind of urban playground. And I think this relates to maybe an upcoming feature on the ice cream museum you're going to be doing that talks about how people just use the city as an urban playground right now. And and especially Manhattan is the most playgroundy of all right now. That's a good point. Yeah, New York has changed so much. I mean, it's it's a playground for rich people. I think a lot of people see it like that. I don't know if this project could have possibly have happened 20 years ago, but I mean, it's 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 it is excessive. I mean, is this a public piece or is this a just I mean, we have a billionaire who's paying for it. Is this one of those public private partnerships or is this completely private? You got to pay a fee to get up this ridiculous monument to uh <coughs> <laughs> I'm assuming it's public. I mean, is there a pile of gold that I jump off the top and I can land on like <laughs> Richie Rich? Good questions. I, I assume it's publicly accessible, but uh, who knows? I don't know. You know, the best contribution to this ridiculous piece of shit is uh, if somebody gets to tag the crap out of it. Mm. With, uh, if taggers get to tag the mess. It doesn't you know, look I very mean, taggy, though. It doesn't look very taggable. Um, That's what I was thinking. One of the one of the commenters on uh, Will Galloway, friend of the show. We haven't had him on the podcast, have we? We really should. I know. Um, well, it's hard to uh, coordinate Tokyo time zone with us. Exactly. But we. But do he know. had a really good comment that it's you know it's a it's a symbol of money, and he said, "I bet I would enjoy visiting it." just like all of Heatherwick's projects, unless I had to pay to enter, which yeah. is the case for most of his work, come to think of it. Mm. I mean, that kind of sums it up for me, that we're yeah. fighting against this this 
perception that architects are just, you know, we're the, the court gestures for the very wealthy. Like we're out there doing fun things for the very wealthy. And Heather kind of is starting to exemplify that exactly. That's a really good point. You know, the the topic of, I mean, that's, I'm very curious now to find out if there's going to be an admission fee because then it, it turns from like a gift to the city to kind mm-hmm. of an obnoxious showcase of wealth and uh, commercialism, I guess. Well, there's a good thing about this. Uh, guys like this die. They oh, often stop. do. Not the architects, but the people who build these. <laughs> yeah, these, exactly. These, He's uh, 77 years old. To, okay, so he'll die soon. <laughs> oh, and then uh, the land will be, you know, somehow over some <laughs> period of time, some other rich billionaire is going to want that land and is going to knock this mess down. I mean, you know, we have I mean, that to look forward to. We, we should point out that one of the reasons we're talking about this, and Alexander Walter posted the article, is that The New Yorker did a profile on Thomas Heather Rick, which was not, I mean, I think it was kind of very complimentary and very scathing at the same time. I didn't read the full thing, but I read a good part of it. And it's it sounds like it's asking some good sort of pointed questions about uh, how we're building things in the in the world right now. So. And what about the issue of uh, accessibility, Donna? I know that that's something that you commented on in the piece. Yeah, I think we have talked about this project on Archonnect previously, and someone raised the question of ADA, which is, of course, a really good example. And I think, you know, if I can push this idea a little far, I think that architects constantly, we have constantly struggled with stairs because stairs are something that we've learned about from the Greek, you know, the Parthenon, that the, the journey up a stair is something that builds a certain expectation in the human emotion and psyche and going through that physical work of going up a stair. It's a very human experience. You can, It's akin to climbing the mountain, right? But there, are, it's a man-made mountain. But since ADA, we have been taught, and it is true, that not everyone can do stairs. And so by exclusively using this sense of climbing up something to attain a higher level of well-being or whatever it may be, we are excluding people who can't not do stairs. So I think that the 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 Heatherwick stair, it's called the vessel. It's not called the stair thing. It's called vessel. Vessel is clearly something in which the physical act of working your way up the stairs is a huge part of the experience. And for people in wheelchairs, that's just not going to be an experience they can enjoy. Now, if physical uh, medical technologies keep proceeding in the way that they might, and we might be able to not have people, anyone have to use a wheelchair, but anyone can be able to walk, then that won't be an issue. But that's some years in the future, I think. Yeah, I mean, I I definitely can see both sides of this issue, both sides being your perspective that, you know, that we need to accommodate for disabled users of a, of a building and also um, some of the counter arguments that were in the comments of this piece that maybe there should be exceptions where some projects are purely for the kind of physical experience of the of of a user that is capable i mean it i think that there are exceptions it's definitely not the most politically correct kind of take on it i mean i know for me i i always think back at those playgrounds that i went to as a kid that were incredibly dangerous but so much fun you know and then i and then i look at the playgrounds that i have taken my my kids are too old now for playgrounds but when they were younger I took them to playgrounds and they just, every single playground is exactly the same. It's impossible to get hurt. Everything has rounded corners and it's plastic so that it doesn't splinter. And and there was actually a really interesting uh, thread in the discussion forum a couple months back about the issue of ADA going too far. And mm-hmm. um, so that that's... That that's worth taking a look at. There were a lot of good comments in there, and I think uh, we'll we'll include a link to that in in the show notes. Yeah, that's a good idea. I mean, ultimately, it comes back to 
a question of what an architect or a designer wants to do it in their own work in that I could not design a, a experience that was entirely about a stair accessibility because I just wouldn't feel good about doing it. I would feel like I was excluding people. Other people would feel like that the, the I think, I assume, would feel like the, the payoff for having some people have an amazing experience being that a few people don't get to enjoy that experience is is acceptable. And it's just a matter of, you know, of preference. Because yeah, this thing is not really a building. It's not really subject to the ADA laws in the same way that a building is because it's more of a, a theme park ride, a folly, uh, a, an amusement, an art piece, maybe, although <laughs> in the eye of the beholder. Exactly. All right. Well, maybe uh, it's time to move on to something much more pragmatic and uh, accessible. The architecture billing index has just been released showing a uh, the strongest uh, strongest score since January of 2007, beginning at a year score. Ken, uh, what do you think about this news? Wow. January 2007. That's a kind of ominous year. Oh, God. I know. I know. Is that a <laughs> bad sign? Well, that's, you know, and, I, and again, I think what struck me about this is the statement, healthy conditions continue across all sectors. I mean, I'm sure that the, the ABI is great and all, but it's because, again, this is where the AIA, they really aren't very consistent in their messaging. We've been hammering this administration for their tax plan. And what we're seeing happen is what the, the growth that we're seeing is probably a lot of it is based on the tax plan. So, you know, either it's healthy because it's, it's, it's sustainable growth overall that, that we could see potentially affecting great change or it's, it's growth based on something that we don't agree with. And then by that, how can we call it healthy? I mean, all growth isn't healthy. If you got a growth coming out of the side of your neck, yeah, you might, or the side of your head, you might be growing a couple of inches. You might get that magic height that you're looking for, yep. but it's still a growth on your head. And is it yeah. healthy? Yeah. I mean, this is healthy <laughs> because we have this billing index in, in certain areas of the country working to architects' advantage. And again, the AIA seems to only care about what's in the best interest of the professional and not what's in the best interest of the health of the profession and the growth of a sustainable and a a fully a, a, a good economy. And so I, I kind of find when I saw this, I'm like, wow, this is if this isn't the epitome of a, of a mixed message, I don't know what is. That's a really great use of that word healthy that and it is very scary. There was another article we t I we talked about talking about today, but we're not about how in Dubai, the world project is starting up again. Um, and one of the people quoted in that article said, it feels like 2007 all over again around here. Like, is it really healthy that Dubai is starting to build these luxury custom personally owned islands again? Is that healthy for the whole world? I don't think it is. And frankly, it scares me that that people are saying it feels like 2007 again, because we all know what happened in 2008. I mean, yeah. it was it was ugly. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because the projects that we've been talking about so far, too, are also reminiscent of pre Great Recession times. Yeah. So let's keep our fingers crossed that it's not uh, <laughs> we're not we're not revisiting history with. <sighs> oh, and this time it's going to be worse. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, it only seems like it could be, doesn't it? I mean, I will point out that that. I, I listen to a bunch of I listen to several science podcasts and um, they all talk about sort of the overall standard of living of people and how much it has 
improved in recent decades. If you look overall at the population, I still do worry that we have, yeah, we have people that are just far too wealthy and have too much money to spend on their vanity projects and their private islands in Dubai, that they're going to make artificial snow happen year round. <laughs> and they're scarce. <clears throat> I mean, I, I think it's, it's, a, a, it's obscene, but well, yeah, overall, I think hopefully things are getting better for more people, but <laughs> unfortunately the wealth, the poverty, uh, disparity is not decreasing yeah. and that yeah. that's going to you know ultimately that's going to lead to a lot of problems including a lot of economists say that that's the biggest uh, threat to the environment right exactly so unless that changes i don't know okay well let's let's move on <laughs> really popular story that was up recently in terms of traffic was the news about apple employees bumping into the uh the, the extremely <laughs> beautiful clean uh floor to ceiling glass at the new apple headquarters in cupertino uh, which followed up one of the most popular stories so far of 2018, which was the, uh, or actually it was a little bit before 2018, was about the uh, the deadly icicles falling from the Apple store in Chicago. Another beautiful project designed by uh, Foster and Partners. I love this I don't know story. if there's, I mean, is there anything to talk about this story besides, you know, just the, the fact that people are like crashing into glass and uh, not just people, icicles Paul. all because not, of Apple. Not just people, Apple people. Apple, <laughs> Apple people? <laughs> well, we're Apple people. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I mean like people who have their heads down <laughs> for and get paid for get paid for a living to have their heads down in their iPads and in their iPhones. Yeah, um, my theory, my theory is it's not it's not the glass, it's not the architecture, but it's it's Apple Maps. They're just following directions on Apple Maps. And that's, yeah, that's, that makes perfect sense. Exactly. If they switch to Google Maps or Waze, it will. That, yeah. Either that or the scientists at work at Apple are no brighter than cats when they or dogs when they run out of screen door. I mean, <laughs> or bark at themselves in mirrors. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I. I'm not thrilled about the Apple headquarters. I don't think it's a good building. I feel like, honestly, it's just a suburban office park. It's really no more or less than that. But I do think that Apple has been sort of, they have been pushing the technology of glass and forcing the glass technology to push along with them so that they could do their beautiful staircases, so that they could do this big curved building. I mean, I you know, it's nice to have a a patron of sorts who's looking at material technologies and pushing them. But I just cannot stop laughing at the thought of the Apple employees putting post-its up on the windows as a marker to say, hey, don't walk into this. <laughs> there's, a, there's a glass here. <laughs> I just yeah. find it delightful. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I agree. It's hilarious. But at the same time, I do fully respect and support Apple's push for for good design. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's one of the few companies out there that really does hold design at a, an extremely high standard and and they do prioritize good design. Totally. And I, you know, I think, you know, due to their um, success, they will they will continue to get criticized in any way that that, you know, people find that they they can. Personally, I think the Apple campus the new Apple, uh, you know, the the spaceship um, that some people call it. I think it has like some of the most stunning details that I've seen in any project in the last couple of years. Have you been I mean, in it, Paul? Did you go to the like the press opening or anything? Uh, no, I haven't. I've only seen it through the photos yeah. that everybody else has seen. But the photos show some really beautiful details. Yeah. Yeah, I've driven I've driven by it past the green, the, the 30 foot green walls. You can see glimpses of some of the outbuildings which is interesting i yeah i think um from i think i recall reading that the actual circular building will not be open to the public i think you have to get a 
an invitation to, but there is the, the, uh, the public, uh, building that people can visit that's separate from the, from the big, uh, from the campus. And some of the criticism about this building in particular is, uh, you know, and I don't think it's very, it's interesting because when I think about this building, I think about the AT&T building in New Jersey. What a, an advancement in terms of uh, office buildings. And that one is kind of was. Uh, was that Saarinen or? Yeah, uh, yeah. Was it? Okay. So that one was. Yeah. Near, yeah, it was near my where my aunt lived, and it was an amazing building. They can't do anything with that building. They have right. been trying for like 30 years to figure out what to do with this building. Nobody wants to. They don't want to demo it, which is great. I mean, they're, but they just don't know how to sustainably and efficiently and cost effectively do something with this building that will satisfy. They tried getting Google out there and it just was costing way, way, way too much money to do it. It was money was better spent on actually knocking it down and building a new building there. This building is 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 fat is really reminiscent of that project because one everybody's been pointing out is like how do you add on to this building where do you what's the addition look like on the flying saucer and that's a, that's an interesting thing it's about as easy as changing the battery in your iphone <laughs> what i could change my battery in my iphone <laughs> you, just need to, you just need to send it away for a few weeks and <laughs> well Ooh. Paul, since you're in LA, you can keep us apprised of when Hollywood decides to, when is the first time that Hollywood uses the Apple campus in a post-apocalyptic scene, right? So that the the, mm. the image of it post-apocalyptically, the first time that comes on the radar, let us know so we can, we can critique it. Well, Apple's getting, getting into the entertainment industry, so oh, that's they might right. be the first one to use it. Yeah. They might be the only ones that allow themselves to use they it. Probably can I read be. just one quote from the yes, Bloomberg please. piece? This is really funny. This is uh, from Johnny Ivey. While it is a technical marvel to make glass at this scale, that's not the achievement. The achievement is to make a building where so many people can connect and collaborate and walk and talk, which is this building is proving that <laughs> Apple engineers cannot walk and talk and collaborate in their own building. <laughs> so, so that age old question, can, can they walk at you come at the same time? Apparently not. <laughs> Well, but the architecture could help them to do so, don't you think? The architecture could be very clear and it might be very boring, but it would be very clear that you don't walk here and you do walk here. There, you know, it's it's impossible to have everything. You've got to it's the three legged stool. You got to give up one of them. <laughs> how long? How, how long? How many years before you think they'll put Fred on that glass before so uh, you can actually? It could look lovely though, right? Not. Right. <laughs> Oh boy. It's fun. I mean, it's fun to make fun of Apple. Like you said, Paul, they pay attention to design and their design is tends to be very beautiful. It's easy to punch up at them, you know, because they really are on top of the world. So it's fine. iPhone X is the best, right, Paul? It's the best phone I've had. And I've had, uh, had a lot of them. I actually, the iPhone 10, which I guess it's technically called, but I, I really think it should have been the X. It's what took me back to Apple after, after a year long affair with Android. And, <laughs> um, I, I haven't looked back. It's face ID is pretty, pretty amazing. So yeah, I'm, I'm an Apple fanboy, I guess, but I do, I do respect both sides of the technical world. I do respect what Android's doing. And I don't even know what that is. <laughs> Apple's a better product though. And and a lot of it does come down to design, you know, the way that not not just uh hardware design but software design, it's just it's just a superior user experience. 
So let's move on. Um, I, there's a couple stories that I don't know. Personally, I don't have much to say about them, but I think they're worthy of bringing up. There's a uh, We recently published a story about a new 70-story wooden skyscraper that's, that is proposed for Tokyo that could be one of the world's tallest, which is interesting, I think, solely for the fact that there's been so many announcements of, uh, of tall wooden buildings lately. Yeah, I, I, I've predicted, if you remember a year ago, predicted that CLT and tall wooden skyscrapers were, the technology was going to keep improving and they were going to be more and more popular. And we've been seeing them in the news all over the place. So I love that. I, I think, you know, I like to imagine a, a future world that's um, totally an eco-friendly, everything's built out of totally reusable and recyclable materials. And we all live in this like biometric harmony with the earth. And it's a long way out, but I think that wood skyscrapers are are getting us closer to that. So I'm actually very excited about wood technologies. I think um I think they're really cool. So every time I keep seeing across Twitter, oh another a new, you know, 10-story tim- uh, all timber building or a new public school that's all passive house. I just I love that we're actually using these these technologies in good and interesting and sustainable ways. So, yeah, it's exciting. And most of them look pretty good too. They do. They're very pretty. Mm-hmm. Ken, you have any thoughts on the wood skyscraper or your concrete guy? Well, no, I I, I work next to one, so uh, one of the first oh, really? ones. Yeah, and, and it's it, I think one of the first ones in this country mm-hmm. for sure. You know, I, I could take it or leave it. I, I'm, you know, I, I I think what's some of this, especially the one on the in 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 Tokyo, the one the thing, uh, you know, it's just interesting to me to see how what this building looks like after the exterior weathers. Because it appears that it's ex- exposed to the environment, whereas in in Minnesota it's uh, clad with uh, a core ten steel, so it's intriguing. Oh, but do you think that Japan has a better acceptance of weathering than the United States does? Of course, everybody yeah. else has a better acceptance of everything else <laughs> than the United States. And that's which leads me to kind of one of my points about this building is that I think you know it took me a while to kind of understand. That building with metal studs was not actually a good thing. That actually the more sustainable thing to do is build with um, sustainably cut wood uh, lumber. And, and, you know, that you're actually, you know, by doing that, you're actually doing better for the environment because of the, mm-hmm. you know, the, the trade-offs and the, but so to, to, to someone who, you know, and I'm an architect and it just took me a while to understand why is that and understanding how all of that embodied energy and a, and a piece of material was going right. to um, matter. Um, I think it's even harder for a larger segment of the public to look at this and go, wait a second, I thought trees were supposed to save trees. And how is this good for the environment? You're cutting down all these trees to build these buildings. And is this, it's the same thing with, you know, climate change. People right. are going, oh, it's cold here in Minnesota in, in February. Right. Is it, what about global climate change? We're supposed to be 70 degrees and, and, you know, you know, so just trying to fight that stupid battle is, uh, is something that's going to, once these things start to become, uh, more uh, widely used. I think that's going to be the next challenge is dealing with the idiots that actually pay for this stuff to get built. An interesting point on sustainability and in, in uh, Japan or Tokyo in particular. I remember when, uh, speaking of Will again, mm-hmm. who lives in Tokyo, when he was in LA, uh, I, I spent some time with him and he was talking about the housing like residential architecture in, in Tokyo. And nobody, nobody actually, like people build houses for themselves. And then when they sell it, 
buyers knock them down and build something like everybody's house is like designed for themselves. They live right. in it themselves unless it's an apartment. It's a very unsustainable practice, but the cost of a property is so high that the, the actual built structure is, 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 uh, the cost of that is like negligible. So it's, um, I don't know. It's an interesting point on, uh, lack of sustainable. They are pretty. It's bizarre. Cause it, it kind of goes against what we, you know, this very broad generalization that Ken and I were just making that, um, that in Japan, they're sort of more accepting of of things that are um, that can age or weather, where in the United States, you know, every time someone proposes knocking down a really boring old building, old being 80 years old, people freak out. But um, in Japan, they just like, oh, that house was built 20 years ago. I'm going to build a better one now. I mean, I, I, obviously, it's the, the lesson is don't make these broad generalizations about about the public. But um, but I do think that uh, that Japan is more open to weathering and patina and uh things not being quite perfect than a lot of wealthy people at least in the u.s are yeah true debt true debt <laughs> god should we talk about some of the uh some of the features yes. that have been up on our connect lately yes so, there are a couple new series that have been instigated by uh, anthony mori Who's uh, one of our new writers here? He's an editor at large here on on our uh, with Archonnect, as well as recently getting appointed to uh, executive director and and head curator at the Architecture and Design Museum in Los Angeles, which is so cool, so cool. Congratulations, Anthony, on that. Yeah, yeah, I think it's going. It's it, it actually represents a really interesting time for the museum because um, he's bringing in some a lot of. Uh, youthful energy mm -hmm. um, that I think the museum has really been lacking. From what I've experienced, they've been catering a lot to the the wealthier, maybe, you know, um, donors and uh, people with money rather than um, looking, looking uh, at kind of the exciting next generation of architects and and issues that that the uh the next generation are are addressing or uh, talking about these days so i think it's going to be an interesting time but anyways back to these features one of the one of the features that or one of the series that he's introduced has been called from the ground up which is a look at the first built projects of architects that we that we all are familiar with most recently was uh, lena bobardi and her her project in the uh in brazil the brazilian forest beautiful project do you guys get a chance to look at that yeah it's a freaking gorgeous building <laughs> all of her work is beautiful but i i just i love the intent behind this series that and and it it maybe is even more telling when you go back to some of the older architects like Mies and corbusier who were covered with the very first houses they ever did or the very first projects they ever did and you really see the you know the very nascent ideas starting to blossom in some of their work. I think it's Barely. really valuable for architects to do that, to sort of go back and look at people at early in their careers and then see how those some of those ideas sort of followed through and some were, were cast off. And I think a lot of it comes down to confidence that people, you know, architects become more confident in their in their abilities and and thus are able to push their clients to, yes, follow this idea that I have been working on for a long time. The other thing I want to point out, though, is I would love and I don't know, Paul, if you have any current practitioners who would be willing to show student work, but I would love to see how some of our sort of younger practitioners right now have ideas that from their student days they started playing with and that have followed through into their 
into practice. And I would point to, I, I saw a lecture by Dwayne Euler of Euler Wu a couple months ago, and he really went back to, look, this is what I was doing in school. And these ideas, these lines, these threads have, have carried through. And I love that. And I think it's really valuable for students to see how other students did, you know, approach things and then how that matured into actual work. That's a great idea. I'm going to, I'm going to steal that idea from you. Please do. It's not even <laughs> so stealing. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. I mean, the, the question will be, will these famous or well-known architects be willing to share student work? Because student work can be really freaking embarrassing. <laughs> That's one thing that we've, yeah, we found. We we were talking a while ago among the uh, editorial team here about doing a series of features looking at at like the uh, some of the less uh, or some of the more embarrassing projects that architects have done just to pay the bills. Because, I mean... Back before Arconnect became a a business, you know, back when mm-hmm. it was just my hobby in the early days, I was designing websites for architecture firms and schools. And I I was shocked at some of these firms that I had been familiar with before because their work was really great. I was shocked at look, going through their portfolios and seeing some of the really bad projects that they did. <laughs> and, you know, talking to them about it, they, you know, they, they admitted like, we did this, you know, during a downtime in the economy, yeah. we, we had to pay the bills. We had to keep our staff employed and it's not the kind of stuff they ever put in their portfolio, but it's the stuff that's easy and makes a lot of money. So, um, they all, I, I think everybody, you know, has some of those projects, Oh, absolutely. but nobody wants to share them. So <laughs> our idea of, of, uh, looking at that editorially kind of, uh, quickly, uh, came to a head. I'm, I, I've, not, you know, I think it's only within the past few years that I've come to uh, have even an understanding who Lena Bobardi was. I mean, I'm not really very well versed in her work. So having seen this project, I mean, you could certainly see the movement that she was working in and the similarities to a lot of projects that you've seen, you know, and from other contemporaries. So I think Donna's right. I think one of the most interesting things that I learned in school was talking to one of my professors who was a friend of John Haydock's and Haydock worked through Corbusier and worked through that work to get to a project where he said, what didn't Le Corbusier do? And he, I think that from what I understand, came up with a, the diamond houses. By looking at specifically what Corbusier did not work on, Haydock came up with what he wanted to work on. Is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah. So he thought, uh, my understanding, like the Texas houses, you look at Texas houses and you see a lot of like Mies in there, a lot of that. You see a lot of uh, Corb's work and a lot of his earlier work. And then you look at the diamond houses, which seems like a really radical departure. But from what I recall my professor talking about was that that's the work that he did when he worked through those other uh, Mies and Corb, worked through those those works and came to the conclusion that this is the project that that Corb would have done if he had the chance. And he's finishing that work. And that was kind of the point of the uh, one of the like departures for him. It's so it, his diamond houses are so radically different than any of his other his earlier works that that, that was my understanding. So it's it's a val- it, you know, I always thought it was a valuable teaching tool to, to take those people that you are that you have as heroes and work through their work and to come out on the other side to have your create your own vocabulary. And by doing the doing of that work, you start to figure out what is it makes, you know, you're finding who you are as an individual. And that's where you come out on the other side. And I think there's a lot, lot to be said about that. Paul, do you have anyone else lined up for this series yet? Have you guys? Uh, we do. We do. But I don't want to mention anybody okay. in particular yet, because I know that uh, 
things shift. So, um, yeah, but yeah, there's, this is uh, just the beginning of a, yeah. of a series that we continue doing, I plan on it. doing for a while. Excellent. So another series that Anthony has kicked off, which really was inspired by his time, I believe as a fellow as, in a fellowship at, uh, I forget, but he, um, he recently graduated from, uh, Harvard's GSD program where he met a lot of people that were, uh, engaged in fellowships and either current or past. And so he started this series called Fellow Fellows, which takes a look at the at this at this kind of recent eruption of fellowships within architectural academia. I really like the the series because it doesn't shy away from talking about the critical and negative aspects of fellowships that people, you know, regarding pay equality and other issues. So it's it's we've we've published, I believe, three so far. We've got a lot of fellows that are in the pipeline that we'll be publishing soon. There will be another one coming out on Friday, which is the day after this podcast uh, airs. My main memory of University of Michigan, when I, I went there briefly as a grad student, and it was very much in the grad program, there were the professors tenured who had been there forever, who were teaching very valuable knowledge and practice. And then there were these, Michigan has a big fellowship program. So there were a bunch of young, super cool, you know, fellows that were just there for two years and everyone wanted to get them for studio because they were super cool. I think the fellowship program is wonderful, but, uh, you know, I think that the notion of being exposed to young, new thinkers in fields is great, but I don't want to see tenure go away. I mean, I don't want to see people who really have a body of knowledge and a serious academic background. I don't want to see them get eclipsed. That's the only thing I really have to say about fellowships. I do think that um, obviously the whole discussion of pay amongst um, adjunct professors is a huge topic, but, uh, and a very depressing one. Um, but yeah, I have, I, that's, that's my main uh, relationship to the notion of a fellowship in architecture is they tend to people be people that are doing super cool stuff that's fresh and that's exciting yeah it's a good point though i think it's worthy of a uh an op-ed potentially <laughs> uh... <laughs> yeah i actually i I'm, if that's what donna thinks i'm probably probably hewing pretty close to that opinion as well i think anything that makes it more attractive i mean i think it does seem really like a you can see the edges of that. When you were talking about that, Donna, the one thing that kind of raised my hackles is like, it's bad enough as it is that adjuncts don't get paid shit yeah. to teach. And now you bring in these superstars. So it's an, it's a stark text system for the academic set. Mm -hmm. And if, you know, if they can just come in and, and get a shit ton of money and show up to like maybe three classes and have all these TAs run everything and you and you see them every once in a while. I mean, you're taking the master's level, what the intent of the master's program back in when it first started, when you were learning under a master and you're really exploiting it for driving up student tuition and driving down and making the the idea that um, organ, organizing for adjuncts even much harder. And much more of an imperative to have happen so that, you know, to pay these, uh, pay people to do this is just, you know, so if that, that's, that's my whole name. So when Donna's talking about that, that's the one thing I kind of went to right away. So hopefully that's not Which I happen. think, I think Anthony's series is focusing more on people who are not well-known, right? People that are well, sort of the point coming of the fellowship, up. Then? I mean, you know, I like, generally, I think I would like all these people. I think, you know, I would imagine that Jimenez Lai would be a person that would get a fellowship somewhere. And I think that would be great. Yeah. But if it's at the expense of, you know, two 
uh, adjuncts, they can just dis- discard and the students have to pay more tuition for, for what? What's the benefit here? Since it's always benefiting somebody and uh, somebody else and not the people who actually need the benefit. Mm. Good points. I don't know if they're good points. I could be completely out of my ass on this one, but um, <laughs> I generally have a really, so I have my sliding trust of people doing the right thing had kind of went away in 2016. So yeah. it's, <laughs> we got to come out on you. the other side of this <laughs> before I can actually believe that we all have our best interests, each other's best interests in mind when we're doing something that seems like a great idea. Like stairs that go to fucking nowhere. You know? I mean, <laughs> but you get a view. But I mean, to me, it, it comes down to students and making sure that students in architecture school are aware that there are um, crazy new ideas that come up that are cool and that we should sort of spend time on. And then there are ideas that have weight and and importance in the discipline and we also need to know those like you need to you know you just it comes down to balance we need a balance that's all i'm trying to say and and again i'm just going off on a little bit of a tangent here so right now what's occurring at the aa they elect the people who get to run the aa which is a fascinating idea i mean it's it's crazy amazing so the three the shortlisted candidates are there this week and they have their run through each day of the week the the last candidate is actually a former is a student of the AA uh, and practicing architect and if you read his profile in his interview it is stunning he won't I mean I at first I thought well he's from the AA I mean he's got this he's got this whole background he's got this history there he's definitely going to get elected but if Ooh, you read oh is that a prediction oh I thought I just read it I was like oh I first I again it was a passing and I said oh he's a student of the AA you know it was Ava. Ava Franch of like a storefront art for architecture. And she's, you know, taught at Cooper Union and stuff like that. And somebody who I've never heard of who said an, uh, another architect, but then I want to say his name is Brent Hull or some, something like that. But when I finally sat down and actually spent some time reading his, his analysis and his, what he wanted to do, it was probably the most uplifting message that I've ever read from someone who planned on taking on a school. And I'm like, oh my God, he could be the one that changes everything because mm. it was so forward thinking that I almost like, I, I'm like, how does this person even exist on this planet? Do you remember who you're, are you talking about Robert Mull or Robert, people? Robert Mull, Robert okay, Mull. Robert Mull. Yeah. Robert Mull. I mean, his, his piece in there was just, it was amazing. He challenged it whether or not they actually needed to have, I mean, it, it was a question of like, or he asked himself like, or, um, if the AA didn't exist, would you need to create it? And he's like, I don't even know why we need it. <laughs> Basically it was, it was a, there was this great, All right, I've but that's go the kind that. of, yeah, it was the kind of thing that you need, that you want, if you want somebody really serious, they have to question the nature of what it is that they're actually doing and if, whether or not it's worthwhile in doing. And his whole exposition, his whole, every answer was so, I I could, I'm like, this is, this guy can't be for real. And I'm like, he, he, he won't get elected because there's just no way this, that the system that's in place would ever allow this guy to, to, to be able to affect minds in this way. But he's exactly the person we need. Mm. He's not the hero we want. He's the hero we need. Use a Batman reference. All right. (laughs) I mean, I think it would be interesting, Paul, and yeah, we're way off on a tangent here, but um, 
you know, I still think of Archonnect and of the architecture discipline very much in relation to students and what students are learning and thinking about it, what's going on in schools right now. So maybe we, when we first started the podcast, we had an episode on student debt and we had some students on. Maybe we should get some students on the podcast again. Yeah, that'd be great. Because I love talking about architecture education. I mean, it's really, it's key. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's two other features that I just want to briefly mention that I thought that I personally really enjoyed that I, I guess, uh, that I'm recommending that other people check out. One is, uh, was a piece that was written by Nam, our friend Nam Henderson, who, uh, lives in Denver. And he actually was the first outside contributor to our small studio snapshots series, which is a quick interviews with small practices that are doing great work that talks about, you know, running a small practice and the challenges, the, the benefits and everything that, everything that goes into that. So he recently uh, interviewed Kevin Hearth, a local Denver architect who does really awesome work. So I, I recommend checking that out. And one other, one other piece that I really enjoyed was uh, we reached out to Armin Vitt from Brand New. Brand New is a blog that he uh, co-authors with his partner about brand redesigns, logo redesigns. And we actually, we asked him to review the logos of the 10 most popular firms on Arconnect. And by by 10 most popular, we mean the firm profiles on Arconnect that are being followed by the most users. And the reviews were were really interesting. Not, not, <laughs> not overly positive by any means. They made me think that, you know, a lot of these logos are probably designed in-house because architects think that they can design everything. Oh um, my and then God. A, yes. <laughs> and when you get a professional logo critic, you know, to come in, you realize uh, they 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 can't. You maybe they maybe they're the best architects in the world, but they're not necessarily the best uh, logo designers or branding designers in the world. But I thought it was really interesting. It's a funny and fun article and I'm actually surprised there hasn't been more commentary on it, but I will say here that uh one, yes, Paul, architects think we can do everything, so we just decide, yes, we're going to design everything and often it results in failure. And I'm going to go full on architect comment personality here and say Snowheda sucks man <laughs> it just sucks <laughs> it is not good Snowheda more fuel to the fire it's not good <laughs> I like that one I don't I think shops is awesome and a lot of people hate oh, it so I hate you know I hate, the, I hate DSR I hate the shop one <laughs> I like DSR. Zaha is the worst. Actually. Zaha is the worst. It so, definitely yes, is. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. We all but, agree. You know, on I, that. I I have to say that um <clears throat> so I engaged a graphic designer, a local graphic designer here in the Twin Cities and had them design me, my brand. So when I when I got involved in it towards the end, I was like, oh, I really like this stuff. And I said, why don't you add that? And she added it. And it, not until I got the cards and I got them printed out and I'm looking at them going, oh, fuck. <laughs> so I, I got through those shitty cards. I Thankfully, I didn't order a whole lot of them, but I got through them. And I went to her and I said, look. Here's what I'm going to tell you. If I ever propose something ever again, just tell me to go fuck off. Just straight out. I said, because clearly that last iteration was awful and it was my fault. And I only recognized it after it got in my hand and I started like carrying it around and I hated it. So I said, from now on, I am going to trust that you're 
you, I trust in the people that we work with, the professionals. Yep. Yep. I trust the people that cut my hair. She's got the best opinion. She's That's what she does for a living. She cuts my hair. When Paul and I go out and get a drink, I'm trusting the bartender to make me something because I don't want to look at the freaking menu. I have no idea what half that menu is. I don't even know what any of that crap tastes like. I trust the bartender to make it. So I said, I'm going to trust in your choices and what you decide. And she came up with this, the 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 most kick-ass logo. And I said, yeah. that'll never change. And even on the on the other side of my card, she did something that I never would have done. I never would have done in a million years. And I kept it because it wasn't me, not something I would ever thought of, but I really liked it because it came from somebody who was a designer. So I was going to raise your logo, Ken, because I know that you work with a designer and I think your logo is awesome. And I didn't want to embarrass you, but yes, I totally agree. You went with a professional. She did an amazing job. I love your logo. And speaking of uh, trusting uh, uh, drink recommendations, Ken, your <laughs> Ken has an actual coffee drink named after him in Minneapolis yes. that I had the pleasure of experiencing, and it was quite amazing. So if you're ever, what's the name of the coffee shop? It's a uh, Dogwood Dogwood coffee. Dogwood. So if um, you ever go East to the Lake. Dogwood coffee shop in Minneapolis, ask for the Ken, and you will not be <laughs> you will not be uh, disappointed. And here's the tagline that goes along with it: It smells like being buried alive, but it tastes like heaven. That's right. Yes. Oh my God. That is that's like the perfect tagline for you, Ken. <laughs> what else could it be called? Can I just say one quick thing about that piece that Nam did? I have to tell you that that was probably one of the most refreshing and honest interviews that I've ever read on your site. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm like, we cannot ever get this level of honesty from any architect we talk to. Well, architects don't tend to be very vulnerable. You know, yeah, I think, exactly. I think, no. and when they are, it really, everybody loves it. You know, yeah. I think that architects should not be so afraid to be vulnerable because people, people can relate to that. You know, they, I think people, uh, people are sick of hearing architects talking about how great they are. Oh, um, yeah. They, they want to, they want to hear about the struggles. Absolutely. Even if they don't want to hear about your jujitsu every week, they still want to hear about your struggles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I think we're we're nearing the end here, but we were talking about sharing our own. Uh, Ooh, yes, stories. Paul, what are you reading this week, and what are you listening to? Um. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, I just finished reading um, Canada by Mike Myers, which I, I oh actually really enjoyed. Uh, <laughs> amazing and i didn't know that book existed i want well, to read it yeah i mean the interesting the thing i could really relate to it because mike myers left canada when he was 19 and has only had a relationship with canada as someone that lives outside of canada ever since then and it's exactly the same story for me because i left canada when i was 19 so the book is all about canada from his perspective living outside of canada and also growing up in canada so i loved it I loved it. It was uh, it talks a lot about the um, about Pierre Trudeau and his his son, Justin Trudeau, who's now the prime minister and just the the unique culture of Canada, which is totally different than the rest of the world. So I just finished that. And then um, so I just started uh, The Circle, which is a Dave Eggers uh, novel and kind of reminds me a lot about the uh, Apple Apple campus. It, it's a uh, fictional story about this kind of dystopic um, social network of the future and the environment in which it uh, inhabits. And then listening, um, I've been listening to Django Django's new album. Django Django is a British, it's a very British band. Actually, they, um, they don't see, they seem to be huge in, in the UK, but whenever they come to LA, they play tiny little clubs and it's 
amazing shows. And I, I really like it. They're um, the brother of one of the guys from the beta band co-founded it. It's really good. Their latest album is great. It's not their best one, but it's really good. And I've also been listening to uh, the Dead Obies, which is a kind of an experimental hip hop band from Montreal. Donna, what have you been listening to and, and reading lately? <laughs> I don't listen to much music. I just put my iPod shuffle on shuffle and listen to all the songs that I've listened to over and over again because I like them. Um, but I've been listening to podcasts. I listen to a lot of podcasts. And I'm going to go this week with mentioning a podcast called Doughboys, which is um, was recommended to me by Enrique Ramirez, a friend of the podcast. And um, it is a couple of comedians who bring on a guest every week and talk about a various fast food or chain restaurant. And it is hilarious. And it's not unlike our podcast, or at least this episode of ours, in that it's also just a lot of sort of random talking and asking questions of each other and discussion that just goes where it goes. But they do go have a meal and um, they discuss the meal and uh, it's just hilarious and fun. And as I said earlier, food is something that everyone can sort of bond over. So um, it's a good podcast. And uh, reading, I'm in midway through two books right now, both very serious books. One is Radical Technologies by Adam Greenfield, and it is about the ways that technologies change our built environment and uh, do so in ways that are completely unexpected, but should be totally predictable. So I don't know if you guys heard about this thing recently that was in the news where the locations of military bases can be discovered and tracked by people using their Fitbits to go jogging. No, it's Strava. And Strava is an app that I use when I go mountain biking. And I've always had a problem with it because their privacy settings are completely counterintuitive. So when I read this story, I was like, yeah, I mean, I yeah. totally could relate yeah. to it. Strava really needs to fix that. And that, you know, Adam Greenfield has said on th like on Facebook or Twitter, or whatever, will say like, oh, this could never have been predicted. Could it have? Where he's basically saying, yeah, if designers of of user interface, if you're thinking about these things, you can predict the technologies and what they're going to do. So that's a it's a hard book to read because it's terrifying in the way that Black Mirror is terrifying. And then the other one I'm reading is um, Maynard de Graff's Four Walls and a Roof, which is amazing. And I won't say too much about it. I've been tweeting a lot of little quotes from it. Ken, I think you're reading it too, right? So I'm going to ask the question, Ken, what are you reading and what are you listening to? I am reading uh, for I am reading that book, Four Walls and a Roof, and it's it's a very very interesting book. It's a great read. Um, reading that, I'm reading October. Um, but uh, it's a story. Of, it's about the Ref Russian Revolution, but it's not a kind of a it's not a really a history book in this in that sense. It's kind of more of a story telling about the about the events that led up to that the revolution. And I'm um, you know thumbing and reading through my um, Hayduck book. The Lancaster Hanover Mask book. The the thing I'm listening to now, and I really wanted to give props because I think um, there's a, I think the money goes to a good cause is uh, Shannon and the Clams, band out of uh, Seattle, I believe. Um, they did a their uh, latest album called Onion, and it was tribute to the victims of the Ghost Ship Fire in Oakland. Oh, they had a lot wow. of they have a strong connection to, and I think. And I, I, I might be getting this wrong, so don't, you know, don't hold me to it. I think uh, sales uh, of, of that CD, I think, um, or downloads or what have you, are going to uh, benefit those who have lost people in that fire. So I think um, that's what I'm listening to now. Can you, I, can, can you remind me who was the hip hop artist? I think she's Minneapolis based that you played in the car for me when we were together in uh, Columbus. Lizzo? 
Yes. Lizzo What's her name awesome. again? Lizzo. Lizzo. That yeah. was excellent. I was just thinking yeah. about her the other day. So, yeah. Yeah. She's a, a tremendous singer, songwriter, fixture in the Minneapolis. Yeah. We have very talented people here in the Twin Cities. Well, I thought th- I thought this was going to be a short episode. I know um, and because it's it was kind really of long. like a last minute change of plans. <laughs> but um, it, yeah, it's been a long one. So anybody out there that's still listening to us, thanks so much. Whoa, <laughs> that's long. Swing by and say hi sometime. <laughs> yeah, see? yeah. So I guess uh, I that's- guess that's that's our show. Um, thanks to everybody that stuck around. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, Arc Sessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. And uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving us a review and a rating on iTunes. We, uh, we really love uh, seeing those. If you don't like the podcast, don't do that, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Talk to everybody next time. Thanks, you guys. It was fun talking to you as always. Thank you.